Last week, I introduced you to a quote from A.W. Tozer that says, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, every one of us has theology. Theology is simply what comes to your mind when you think about God. Theology, that's what theology is, is beliefs. And we all have beliefs. So we're spending some time. We're spending nine weeks talking about some theology. And we're using something called the Apostles' Creed. So our series is called I Believe, Exploring the Theology of the Apostles' Creed. And, and I'll explain a little bit what the Apostles' Creed is in a bit. But this idea of theology, it's what we believe. And every person on the planet has beliefs. And so we're going to look at some of the biblical and some of the deep, rich, historical beliefs of the church through this series. And so last week, if you were here last week, I told you I have three goals, three goals for this series. First is I want to help you clarify your beliefs. So do you know what you believe? Second is I want to challenge some of your beliefs. Because there's a pretty, pretty good odds here that you have some unbiblical beliefs, intentionally or unintentionally. And so I want to challenge. I want to push on those a little bit. I want to kind of poke at the sore spots. Okay? And third is, third is I want to help, I want to check your definition of what it means to be a Christian. Because the, the theologies that we're going to be talking about, the beliefs we're going to be talking about, represent the core Christian beliefs for the last 15 plus hundred years. And so I want to check, I want to check your definition of Christian. Because simply because you say you are a Christian, that doesn't necessarily mean you are. Because we don't get to decide what defines a follower of Christ. Christ already did that. Uh, so, so those are my three goals. Three goals for this whole series. We're doing nine weeks. We're on week two. So I want to start by reading the whole Apostles' Creed. So every week I'm going to read the whole Apostles' Creed. And each week we're just going to look at a little section of it. And now this, this creed so is, well, first a creed is a, an organized statement of belief that ha was written by the church, that was approved by the early church fathers. It wasn't just some guy in a room writing some stuff that he thought was cool. No, this is something that was written and struggled and agonized and debated and wrestled and, uh, and fought over and then prayed over and searched for insights and then, then came to a resolution where the church, all of the church leaders said yes. We agree with this. So that's what a creed is. And this one, the Apostles' Creed, is actually the earliest of all of the creeds. The creeds were fundamental for the church to help shape beliefs and clarify beliefs. They were fundamental for the church. And this was the very first one. It dates back to 150 A.D., uh, so this was after the time of Jesus and the apostles and the books of the Bible, but not all that long after. And so this is the earliest one. It's one of the clearest and simplest, and so that's why I thought that it would be a great tool for us to spend a few weeks on. 
to look at our beliefs and what are great biblical beliefs. So I'm going to read through the whole thing first. If you know it, and it, maybe you grew up in a church where, where you recited this and you really enjoy that, if you want to recite it, you can do that along as I go along. If you want to just read as I read, you can do that. If you just want to listen and take it in and let God speak these words into you, you can do that as well. So here we go. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. So that's the whole Apostles' Creed. Now, one of the things you might notice as, as you were listening and reading is that this creed is distinctly Trinitarian. It talks about God the Father, Jesus, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It talks about all three of these. And today, today we enter in the, the section that talks about Jesus. And we'll spend a few weeks on here because it's a pretty big section, actually. So we'll spend a few weeks on Jesus. And so the section we're going to look at today reads like this. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So this is packed with theology. It's just, it is just packed. I, I, literally, I literally tried to cut this section into two parts and like squeeze it in, but then we were running into Thanksgiving and cool things we have in, in, um, in November. And so I'm like, okay, scratch that. Let's just hit it all today. Okay. But that's okay. So here, let me run through these words really quickly with, because each of these words is packed with deep beliefs. So, so there is Jesus. Jesus is the human name given to a baby born in Bethlehem to a teenager named Mary. Christ, that's the title of Messiah, Savior of the Old Testament. God's only Son, a title of exclusive divine status and relationship. Our Lord is this, is this highest divine King, ruler. That's what Lord is, the, the Master of everything. Um, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Jesus was divine in conception, not having an earthly father, and born of the Virgin Mary. Human in delivery. Divine in conception, but delivered, there we go, found, very humanly. Now, do you notice a contrast? There's a tension in all of these terms. There's a tension between divine and human. A human name, a divine title. A divine conception, a human birth. 
And this section, better than any, anywhere else in the Apostles' Creed, captures this tension in Jesus about divine and human. Because the truth is, those two things, divine and human, those, those two things don't go together. They don't. They, they're just ridiculously contrasting. They're like oil and water. Republicans and Democrats. Taylor Swift and normal sane people. <laughs> They're just completely opposite. Um, and so, so, but theologians, theologians have wrestled with this tension of divine and human ever since Jesus came on the scene. And they've developed, there's a word for this. There's a great rich word for this, and it's called incarnation incarnation, which, which literally means putting flesh on. This is God with flesh on. This is God becoming human. And that this incarnation is in Jesus, God became flesh. Jesus was fully God and fully human. And I was a math teacher, so I think I can say this correct. 100% human and 100% God, the math doesn't work out. Okay? It doesn't seem to click there. But that's what the, that is the part of the mystery of the incarnation. So I got two things to help us understand the incarnation. First is going to be a quote. I found this amazing summary of the incarnation while I was reading up for this sermon. And then the next is a, a short video. So first I want to read you this quote. It's one of the best and clearest um, quotes that I found to describe the incarnation. Here it is. The incarnation of Christ is a central Christian doctrine that God became flesh, assumed a human nature, and became a man in the form of Jesus, the Son of God, and the second person of the Trinity. This foundational Christian position holds that the divine nature of the Son of God was perfectly united with the human nature in one divine person, Jesus, making him both truly God and truly man. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, became flesh when he was miraculously conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Now, you know where I found that? Wikipedia. It's true. Who knew that the thing that helped you get, every, get through every single high school book report also had great theology? It does. I regularly go to Wikipedia for sermon prep. Okay? So there it is. There's, it, it, is it, it is this great summary. Okay, now next is a video, and this is from a series of videos that, that I've really enjoyed. They're called Three-Minute Theologies. So as you can imagine, so this, this from this series, Three-Minute Theology, so this video is about 10 minutes long, okay? No, I'm just kidding. It's about, it's about three minutes long. They would be terrible at naming things if they did 10-minute videos of Three-Minute Theology. Okay? And, so the, and this one's on the incarnation. So let's go ahead and watch. I didn't tell you you could listen, just watch. <laughs> They're scrambling to get the, the audio. Once the audio kicks back in, we'll restart this. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense like this. Here we go. Also, 
เลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยเลยโอเคยัง looks like it's a scratch on that so so let's go to move from this and then and then if you can get it we'll fire this one up because um, it, it's well worth a watch um. oh oh no that's just someone's phone man you you faked me out <laughs> that's all right that's all right they, they're working on we we've got a major brain trust
Fully God, fully human, two natures, one person. That's the mystery of the incarnation. And so there are lots, there there are a lot of texts I could turn to to talk about the incarnation. Um, I could go to Philippians 2 that talks about that, that Jesus being in the same nature God took on, he humbled himself and took on the nature of a human servant. We could go to John 1 and see where where Jesus was with God from the beginning. He was the eternal along with God. He wasn't created sometime later. And that he he became flesh and came down to dwell, live with us. Um, but, But for today, I decided to teach and talk about the beginning of the incarnation which is Jesus' birth story. And so if you've ever been to to church on Christmas, you've probably heard this, the story of the birth of Jesus. And so we're going to look at that. It's not Christmas yet, but I figure it's starting to get colder, so we might as well just jump right ahead to December and talk Christmas. So we're going to be looking at Luke 1, very first chapter of Luke. So the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus, the beginning of the incarnation is told in two of the Gospels, in Luke and in Matthew. We're going to look at Luke here. So if you want to follow along, you, you can flip to it, click to it, you can read up on the screen, but this is going to be Luke 1, 26 to 35. And before I start, um, there's th- this story begins with a character named Elizabeth. Now, if you've been around church on Christmas, you might know Mary, you might know Joseph, and like a barn, and wise men, and cows, and things, sheep. But you'd be like, wait, I don't remember Elizabeth in the nativity scene at home. Okay? But so, so Elizabeth is Mary's cousin. She's also the mom of John the Baptist. So if you, if you know him out in, the, out in the desert baptizing people. So, so he, she was Mary's cousin, which actually meant John the Baptist was also Jesus' cousin. And Ma- uh, Elizabeth was pregnant. She was about six months ahead of Mary. So John the Baptist was, was about six months older than Jesus. And the story begins with her. So she's pregnant already. Here we go. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. So there's this, oh, not not quite yet. So there's the setup. There's the setup. All, of the, all the stories, when you read stories out of the scripture, there's always a setup, an introduction as to kind of what the story's going on. So we've got Elizabeth, we've got Mary, not pregnant yet, we've got Joseph, okay? and so they are engaged. They are, back then it was called betrothal. They were betrothed. I don't know, are you, anyone here betrothed? But the, their engagement is a little different than ours, but you can kind of think of it like they're engaged, okay? Not married yet. 
Um, she's, she clearly from the passage is not a hussy. She's still a virgin, hasn't been fooling around. She and Joseph up, not up on like make out hill above the Sea of Galilee or something. Nope. They, they've been keeping it clean, keeping things zipped. So that's the setup. <laughs> Here we go. Mary was greatly troubled at these words from the angels and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. Now, as we read here, I want you to listen for the words of the Apostles' Creed, because they're all throughout this passage. So here we have Jesus. The angel tells Mary to name, name the baby Jesus. That is a very human name. There were other Jesuses floating around. In fact, it, it seems that it was a fairly common name. So, so there were other Jesus, but, but the name is really significant. Names in, the, in Scripture are very significant. So because this name means Jehovah saves. It's Yeshua or Jesus or Jesus if they're south of the border. Okay? And it means Jehovah, that's the name of God, Jehovah saves. So that's the first name we see from the Apostles' Creed. Also, there's this phrase, Son of the Most High. Now, the Most High is an Old Testament name for God. Because God is, last week, if you're here last week, we talked about God being almighty, which means he is mightier than anything else. Everything else is less mighty than God. So God of the Most High means just that, that he is the highest above everything else. Even the high stuff, God's higher then. And so, son, so here it is in the passage, son of God, son of God. And this was a divine title. Now in scripture, scripture talks about those who believe in Jesus Christ can be called sons and daughters of God. But that's not different than this, son of the most high or son of God. Because the language that is consistent through scripture, when you believe in Jesus Christ, you are adopted into God's family. Before believing or not believing in Jesus Christ, you're not part of God's family. All of us were born not part of God's family. But, but when, you, when you say yes to Jesus, you are adopted. You are an adopted son and daughter. Okay? This is an adoption. This is birthright. That Jesus was born divine. The divine son of God. Okay, so let's, let's continue through the story. The Lord God will give him the throne. Still talking about this little baby. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, you don't have to be a genius to know about kings. Kings start and kings end. Reigns start and reigns end. There has never been and nor will there ever be a king here on earth whose reign will never end. So clearly, this angel is talking something totally different than any type of king people are used to seeing. 
And so you've got three, this is, this is kingly language. The throne, the reign, the kingdom. And, and so what all of this is, what all of this is, this is lordship language. Because if you remember, that's what the, the word Lord means. It's the king. It's, it's the top notch. It's the master, the ruler, the grand poobah of all poobahs, the biggest, tallest of them all, the king. And so here's this angel saying that this little baby is going to be the king of all kings, and his reign will never stop. He will never be deposed. So here it is saying that this baby Jesus will be Lord. And now the best question out of the whole passage. Mary goes, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? I could just imagine Mary be like, um, I know how this works. My, my parents gave me the birds and the bees. Um, do you know how this works? Because <laughs> this is not how it, yeah, and it's a great question. Be like, um, are you sure about this? We haven't, we haven't yet, but. Um, it doesn't work like that. And th there's, there's been a lot of debate, particularly in the last hundred years, about the virgin birth. And in fact, the, the virgin birth has taken a lot of hits lately, even from Christian theologians, generally more, more progressive or liberal theologians. Um, and fundamentally, th there's this big argument about the word virgin that's used in the Old Testament as well. And then when it's translated into Greek, that the original Hebrew word could be virgin or young woman. So some people will argue, no, Mary wasn't a virgin. Because th that word translated could also be translated as young woman. This could just be a young woman. She was probably a teenager, 14 or 15 or so. Um, Joseph was maybe a late teenager, 18, 19, maybe something like that. Um, it, but, but all of those arguments about the Greek and the Hebrew mistranslations and all of that, in my book, they're practically irrelevant. Because in the story, Mary herself says... Um, we haven't knocked boots, so I don't know how you're planning on this. I'm a virgin, okay? And this isn't Jane the virgin. This isn't like a sloppy gynecologist. No, it just hasn't happened. So I actually believe that her question is the strongest evidence and the strongest support for the idea of a virgin birth. Um, because that seems ridiculous. That seems impossible, but you see, remember, God is almighty. He is ruler of heaven and earth. If he is almighty, that means everything in existence is under his rule. Now, Jesus walked on water. I can swim through water. I can't walk on water. But you know what? The cohesion and adhesion properties of water are below God. God can take a few fish and a few loaves and turn them into thousands. Why? Because the properties of matter are below God. They are beneath God's power. God rules over the properties of matter. That also means God rules over the properties of conception. So all of that biology is less powerful than God. That's how God can do miracles. 
Because all of the laws of science are less powerful than God. So if God wants to make the creation of an embryo of a baby without the sperm and the egg there at once, he can do that because he is almighty and everything else is under his rule. So she asks a great question and a pretty legitimate one at that. So here's God's solution. Conception from the Holy Spirit. Here it is. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. There's another phrase. There's that phrase, will be called the Son of God. Now, there's a little bit more in this passage, but we're actually going to stop here. Um, now, so the Holy Spirit would conceive Jesus. He would be the son of God because Joseph would not be his biological father. He would be God's son. Okay. Now, did you, do you see the word so up there? It's the transition between the two sentences. That the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Holy Spirit, will, uh, the most high, will overshadow you. So the Holy One born will be called the Son of God. Now, that word so in Greek, that can also be translated as therefore. And if you've been around River Life at all, you know what I say. Whenever you see a therefore, find out what it's there for. But this one is so. So maybe it's like, when you see a so, find out what is there for. <laughs> but, but you have to ask yourself, what's the connection because when you see a therefore or a so, what it's doing is it's connecting one sentence to the next sentence. And that is critical here to understand the virgin birth. So, so the, holy, the, the, the angel is saying the Holy Spirit will impregnate you. you and you will conceive by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the little baby born will be the Holy One. There had never been a baby born that was holy. And there has never since been a baby born that was holy. We are all marred by the sin of the fall, by Adam's sin. But without a human father, Jesus was not marked by the sin of Adam. He was not marked. He was not damaged. He was, he was not short of God's original design. Therefore, little baby, he can be the Holy One. He can actually be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. Because if it was Joseph, he wouldn't be holy. He wouldn't be holy. So that's the importance of that therefore, that so. Okay? So why is it important that Jesus was born by the Holy Spirit, or conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, okay? So think, of, think about the other options. If Jesus had two human parents, okay? Jesus had two human parents. He could not be God. He could not be fully God. He, now, he could have been given a divine presence, a divine power, the mind of God, but he would still be human. At some point, that presence, that power, that mind would then leave. 
and Jesus would be human again. He could not be God if he had two human parents. It wouldn't work. He would still be under the curse from Adam. He would still be under the the marking of original sin. Let's take the other option. If he was born solely by God, no Mary, no Joseph, God just kind of dropped him down. Either as a baby or a fully formed human. Those were two views of Jesus, by the way. Like that video talked about other views. That, those were two of the views. Because surely Jesus could not have been born through all that muck and blood and yuckiness. Like birth is just yucky and God would never be around yucky. That's not what the incarnation says. The incarnation says... God stepped into the yucky. He became part of the mess. And so some early fathers, even major early fathers, refused to believe that Jesus could be born in a human way because it was too yucky. They didn't understand the incarnation. They didn't understand the majesty, the the near ridiculousness that God, a holy God, would come down into our mess. But he did. So if he was born solely by God, no Mary, no Joseph, no nativity scenes, he couldn't truly be human. He could look human, act human, pretend to be human, but he would not actually be human. So we would have a God that we could not relate to because he fundamentally would be foreign to our experience. But because God had a human parent and he was born in a human way, he was fully human. So if you go either direction, you lose. You lose out something major in the distinctiveness of Christianity. With no human parents, he couldn't save humanity. Because he had to save humanity by becoming human, by taking our punishment. God can't take a human punishment, but a human can take another human's punishment. And that's what Jesus did. So, Jesus was fully God, fully human. Two natures, one person. That's the incarnation. The same essence and substance of God and man. And neither one diminished the other. And that's the fundamental flaw of all of those those beliefs, those those, uh, heresy beliefs that you saw in the video. All of those that were outside the fences, they compromised one or the other. They believed his... Divinity compromised his humanity, or his humanity compromised his divinity. But that's not what the incarnation is, and that's not how the Bible talks about it. The Bible talks about fully God, fully human. So, there are a few implications of this, a few implications. First, first is that 
it's that this belief, the incarnation, probably more than any other theology in Christianity, sets Christianity apart from every other world religion that did exist and still exists. Like, take for instance the virgin birth. If you know anything about Greek or Roman mythology, virgin, excuse me, no, no uh, scratch virgin birth, but, but divine conception. Greek and Roman mythology was filled with divine conception. Like Zeus, he was just going around anywhere he wanted. He was all over the place. But the, the product of Zeus and a human woman was a demigod. Hercules, for instance. Hercules wasn't human. He was a demigod. Because that's what you would think. You average a god and a human, you get a demigod. That math works. Hercules made sense. But when the Bible was written and Jesus was talking, and then as, as Paul wrote about Jesus, that's not how God worked. It was different. This nature, there is not another world religion that claims that it's one of its leaders was fully God and fully human. Two natures, one person. It always leans one way or the other or takes the average of the both, like a demigod. So that's one. That's one um, that even, even uh, virgin births were not uncommon. I mean, th th that was a fairly common mythological archetype. If you read any Joseph Campbell, any of that, th that's a fairly common story. But none of them result in a full, perfect God-man like Jesus. Two other implications, and this is where it starts to get personal. Two other implications of the incarnation. First, Jesus is with you. Jesus is with you. God's not out there. God's here. God is sitting next to you. God is standing next to me. The incarnation means that the most powerful God, person, entity in the universe comes into your mess. He doesn't stay away from you. He's not scared of your mistakes. He, he's not afraid to get his hands dirty. His holiness is not diminished by our lack of holiness. God is with you, and God is with me. Third, Jesus understands you. Jesus understands you. The, bo the book of Hebrews even says that because of the incarnation, we have a great high priest. Okay, that's nice, but that's like, like we've got a king of Thailand. Okay, no, no. But we have a great high priest who understands you who is not up here on his throne no he's down here in your seat he understands you jesus is described as having gone through every temptation that is common to humans so everything you've gone to everything everything you have failed he succeeded at where you fall short he wins at so God 
Jesus understands you. So I want to close. Each one of our sermons, we're going to close by reading the part of the Apostles' Creed that we have studied. So, so we've added last week, and now we've added a few more phrases onto that. So, so it's going to be up on the screen. So, and I wanted to do this. I don't want to do the whole thing because you might not agree or understand it. You might not, so if, this, if what I've been talking about today you agree with, and you want to publicly affirm it, now's the chance. And so one of the other things that churches have been doing for 1,500 years with the Apostles' Creed is that, that we stand. And so, so this will act as our closing prayer. So everyone, everyone stand. And if you don't want to recite, that's okay. You can still stand and just and take this in. But if you say, yes, I believe this, here is your time to pro- publicly proclaim it to God. Uh, So we're going to start with the I believe in God from last week. And here we go. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So worship team, come on up. Um, let me pray. Heavenly Father, um, I, I thank you. I thank you for the gift of Jesus, Lord, that you accomplished something in your almightiness that we could never imagine. Lord, so I thank you that we have a God who is fully divine and fully human. We don't deserve Jesus, but you love us so much that you gave your one and only Son, our Lord, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So thank you, Lord. I pray this in the name of that Jesus. Amen.